Good morning. So wonderful to be here. If you don't know me, my name is Joshua. I'm one of the staff pastors over at Countryside. Bring you greetings from them. We are so thankful for you all. Uh, you probably have heard by now that we are hoping to launch a second church plant from Countryside. Most of you didn't know that you were a church plant from Countryside and that is great, that is wonderful. But we are hoping to plant another church in the next year, year and a half or so. You can pray with us about that. And uh, just so you know, every time we talk about that process, we're reminded of how good God has been to you and how faithful of a church you've been. And so we're just really thankful uh, for you and the ministry here. I'm thankful to be here. Uh, I do not hunt. And so this is my shot at preaching at North Lake whenever Dusty is hunting. So I am thankful to be here this morning. Well, let me say a quick prayer for us. You can turn, grab your Bible. We're going to be in Job 42 here in a moment. But let me pray and then we'll begin uh, studying God's word together this morning. God, you are so good to us. You indeed are our rock, our foundation. You are the one that we can trust. And God, as we come to the word this morning, we're going to be reminded of how we need someone to trust. We are too small to handle this life on our own. And yet you alone, God, you are big. You are big enough to trust. And so we pray that as we come to the word this morning, we would be convicted in our hearts that we would be humbled before you. And therefore we would look to you as our rock and foundation. We're so thankful for the time we have this morning and we pray that you would bless it. Pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the question for you and me this morning is, what do you do when life doesn't make sense? Uh, when you're doing everything you're supposed to do, you're doing all the right things and yet life still doesn't turn out how you expect. Maybe there's a relationship you have in your life and, and no matter how patient and kind and selfless you are to that person, there is still tension and frustration between you. Maybe that person is coming into town for the holidays. Maybe no matter how faithful you are to teach and instruct and discipline your children exactly how Chris tells you to do it, exactly how the Bible tells you to do it, your children are still rebellious and difficult every day. Maybe no matter how careful and wise you are with your finances and how hard you work, God continues to take away that. The budget never balances. And frankly, you don't look forward to the holidays because there doesn't seem to be any extra to enjoy anyway. Maybe no matter how much wise counsel you have sought from your doctor, no matter how much you have begged God in prayer, the diagnosis isn't budging. Maybe you have different problems than all these problems I have in my life. Or maybe you're just looking at your news app and looking out at the world and saying, this place is a mess. Where is God in all this? Why are the wicked the ones that are prospering? Why are the righteous the ones that are suffering? Are there answers for these kinds of questions? There are. We'll find them in Job chapter 42 when we come to our passage. You see, Job and his response to God brings us answers to these kinds of questions. What's interesting though, what we'll find out this morning is that the answer is not actually an answer. <laughs> the answer is a shift in our perspective. The answer is a profound realization that you and I are very, very small and that God alone is very, very, very big. 
God can be trusted because he is the one big enough to trust, but he is also the one who is gracious and kind and good and faithful and perfectly wise. We can trust in him. So that brings us to our theme for this morning. We'll put it this way. Even when we don't understand, we must trust God's sovereignty over our lives. Even when we don't understand, even when our lives don't make sense to us, we must learn to trust God's sovereignty over the circumstances of our lives. Now, I have already made a mistake. I asked you to turn to Job 42. I need you first to turn back to Job chapter 1. And we're going to do a very quick flyover of the story of Job because you can't read the last page of the story and think you know all the answers, okay? So we're going to do a very quick flyover here, but I think most of you have read the story of Job before, so we're just going to hit the highlights. The book of Job, we might give it a theme of suffering and sovereignty that will come up clear as we walk through. In Job chapter 1, verse 1, we find out that there is a man who lives in the land of Uz. His name was Job. And we find out already that this man is right before God. He was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. We find out that he's a family man. Verse 2 tells us he has at least 10 children born to him. In verse 3, we find out that he is enormously wealthy and that he has a good reputation among the people. This is the kind of guy you want to be like. This is the kind of guy you want to be friends with. Job is the man. And yet, later in this chapter, the next couple verses tell us that Satan, that evil one, the, the deceiver, he comes to God and he accuses God of being too nice to Job. He says, of course Job follows you. You're bribing him. You're giving him all this good stuff. His life is great. Of course he wants to follow you. You're just bribing your followers. And God, in his infinite wisdom, <laughs> to prove Satan's foolishness, to prove Job's faith, to prove his own faithfulness to Job, allows Satan to go and to tempt and test Job. And so Satan goes and he takes away everything. Look down at chapter one, verse 14, we find out that the oxen and the donkeys were taken away. Verse 15, the servants were killed with them. In verse 16, we find out that the sheep and the servants were, were consumed. In verse 17, we find out that the camels and the servants, the camels were taken away, the servants were killed and only one messenger escaped to tell Job. Verses 18 and 19 tell us that Job's whole family was killed in a tragic accident, all of his sons and daughters. The beginning of chapter two, Satan is allowed a little bit more leash from God and he can afflict Job personally. And so we find out in verse seven, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Every single thing Job had had been taken away and he is now miserable in pain from something that there's no way to cure at this point. So we come to verse nine, Job's wife looks at him and says, just curse God and die, be done with it. She's a sweetheart, isn't she? <laughs> Job has nothing left but this miserable wife. And yet, look at verse 10, Job responds to her and he says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Job, for the time being, is thinking correctly. We can't take only the good things from God and not expect difficult things. We get both and we trust in God regardless. Now, beginning in chapter uh, two, verse uh, 11, 
three friends show up. Job's three friends, they're named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they come and it says they came to sympathize with him and comfort him. Verse 13 tells us that they sat with him a week before they even started talking because his pain was so great. Beginning in chapter 3 and running all the way through the end of the book in chapter 42 is this long dialogue between Job, these three friends, and a couple more characters that we'll see in just a minute. Now, in Job's response, he's trying to understand. His circumstances make no sense to him. He is living the way that God has instructed him to live. He's doing all the right things, and yet his life just fell apart. We felt like that before, haven't we? Job's response is, as we track him through the book, honestly, he goes on a little bit of a roller coaster. He struggles a bit. There are times where he's trying to think really well. There's times where he's really confused. There's times where he is distraught. There's times where he is angry and he yells at his friends and yells at God. But for the next 29 chapters, Job and his friends argue back and forth and, and frankly, with varying levels of accuracy. Okay, Job's friends, sometimes they say things that are, are very deep, very profound and correct. Sometimes Job's friends say things that are simply wrong. And so we have to be careful as we go through those things. But turn over to Job chapter 13, because this is one of the turning points in Job's thought process. Job chapter 13, verse 1, Job responds to one of his friends and he says, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But verse 3 but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue with God. <laughs> That's a turning point. Job says, I want to talk to God about this. Do you have a manager I can speak to? <laughs> Job wants answers. Look down at verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job isn't concerned about his salvation, his spiritual state, his eternal destination. That's not concerning him. Though even if God kills me, I still hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. I want an audience. I want to talk to God. In chapters 19 and 21 and 23, Job actually comes to the point of questioning God's justice, of accusing God, of assigning him guilt and blame when he was guiltless in these things. Chapter 30, verse 20, Job says, why do you not answer me? Job 31, 35, oh, that I had one to hear me, let the Almighty answer me. Have you ever had that feeling in your life? God, I need some answers. <laughs> that brings us to chapter 32. 32 is a turning point because another character enters the scene. He's a young man named Elihu. He's another friend of Job's, a friend of these other men. But he waited because he was younger to let the older men finish their conversation. And then in Job 32 verse 1, it tells us that when they ceased talking to Job, the anger of Elihu burned against Job. Later in that chapter, it tells us that, that Elihu had to speak. He said he was about to burst. He had so, much th so many things he needed to say. And then chapter 33 verse 12 Elihu tells Job, behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. God bless friends that love us enough to be blunt, right? Elihu looks at Job and says, you are not right in this. He says, God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he doesn't give an account of all his doings? You, why do you think God owes you an explanation about anything? Elihu goes on in chapter 34, verse 10. He says, far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. You're pretending like God is unjust. God cannot be unjust. 
Job 36, 26, Elihu says, behold, God is exalted and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable. Job, you want answers. You can't even understand God. What do you think he's going to say? And that brings us to Job chapter 38. Turn there. This is the last major turning point before the end of the book, because in chapter 38, verse one, the last character enters the scene and this is a big one. It's God. <laughs> God comes, he answers Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this who thinks he's so smart and isn't? Chapters 38 and 39, God explains his power to Job in all these different ways about, about uh, specifically revealed in creation, about how he created the earth and how he manages the sea and how he knows where light and dark come from and he created the stars and, and he controls the weather and he feeds the animals of the earth and all these things. Over in chapter 40, Job responds. 40, the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Oh, you want to talk? You want to argue? Let's do it. Come here. What are you going to say to me? And Job in chapter 40, verse three says, answered the Lord and said, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer even twice. And I will add nothing more. Job, in one sense wisely, says, I don't have anything else to say. Frankly, trying to keep from getting in any more trouble, right? And so in chapter 40 and 41, God reveals his power again, and he explains it in the context of his management of these two great creatures, one he calls behemoth and the other he calls Leviathan. This is very much not the point of our message this morning. I don't believe they are hippopotamus and a crocodile. We can fight after service if you would like. That brings us to chapter 42. Chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, this conclusion, this is the conclusion of the whole book from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to 42, verse 6. This is the conclusion of the dialogue between God, Job, his friends, and what they're trying to understand. How does Job's life and Job's circumstances work? What is going on? What is Job's role in them? What is God's role in them? Is God sovereign? Is he good? Is he faithful? Is he wise? What is happening? Can Job really trust God, even when he doesn't understand? Let's read these first six verses in chapter 42. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. In Job's response here, we're going to see three steps to trusting God in our circumstances. Three steps to trusting God in our circumstances. And the first one we see in verses one and two is the first step is to remember God's perfect sovereignty. Remember God's perfect sovereignty. That is God alone has the power and the authority to accomplish all of his purposes. Remember God's perfect sovereignty. Verse one, Job answered the Lord and said, verse two, I know that you can do all things. The first thing that Job remembers about God's perfect sovereignty is his unlimited power. 
his unlimited power in verse two. I know that you can do all things. That is, God can do, he is able, he has the power to, he has the capability to do all things or everything. God can do whatever he wants. Do you understand? Now, let's be careful about our language here. Let's make some caveats here. The scripture is very clear that God cannot violate his own nature or his character. Therefore, the scripture is clear, even in James chapter one, God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. God cannot sin because that's a violation of his character. Also, we can say things like God cannot violate his own nature or character and the things that he's designed for the world. You have your atheist coworkers says, oh, God can do everything. Can he make a square circle? And you say, well, first of all, that literally the question doesn't work, like it doesn't make sense. And then you say, you know what, God can do anything. And, and God wrote the law of logic and physics. And, and, and I don't know, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. But if you don't repent and believe, you're not going to get the chance to ask him. You see, ridiculous, uh, uh, these ridiculous things that people come up with, they don't absolve you on judgment day, whatever, however smart you think you are. What can God do? If he can really do all things, what can God do? Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Do you remember the context of that story? God gives a son to Abraham and Sarah when they are 190 years old, respectively. Second Chronicles chapter 20, three invading armies come up against Judah, Aram, Moab, and Edom. They come and they're going to destroy the nation under Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles 20 verse six, uh, Jehoshaphat is afraid and so he prays to the Lord. He says, o Lord, o Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens and are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Do you know how that story ended up? The three invading armies all destroyed each other and Judah watched the work of the Lord on their behalf. You know, several weeks ago, my daughter Alice and I got a, a book from the library. It was called something like, Is a Blue Whale the Biggest Thing That There Is? Just so you know, I know my animals. We play the animal game all the time. I was like, before we even cracked the book, I was like, yes, it is. The blue whale is the biggest thing there is. Turns out that wasn't the point of the book. Anyway. The point of the book was, no, the blue whale is not the biggest thing because Mount Everest is bigger than a blue whale and, and the world's bigger than Mount Everest and so on and so forth. Ladies and gentlemen, there must have been a page ripped out of the back of the book because the last page of the book said the universe is the biggest thing that there is. If you know me, I have no problem rewriting children's books on the fly. And so we added another page and I said, Alice, what is the one thing we know is bigger than the universe? And after a couple of guesses that shows she wasn't paying attention as rapidly as I thought she was, but that's okay, probably my reading. She remembered that God is bigger than the universe. God is the biggest thing that there is. God is bigger than you. Do you understand? I, I wish I had a fancy, catchy way to say that so you'd remember. But that's one of those simple truths you just got to sit on for a while. God is bigger than you. In Job 38, when God is explaining himself to Job... He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Who stressed the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. 
God controls everything. God is bigger than you. God is perfectly powerful. Nothing is impossible for him. He has unlimited power. But notice what Job actually says here. He says, I know that you can do all things. I know. This isn't new information for Job. Remember back in chapter 26, Job says stuff like God stretches out the earth over nothing, the north over empty space. And then he says, then these are the fringes of his ways and how faint a word we hear from him. He's like, God is so big and we don't even understand the half of it. So Job knew this all along. So why here in our passage does he say, I know you can do all things. What's he doing? He's remembering. He's remembering. He's acknowledging. He's preaching truth to his own heart. God, I know that you can do all things. I know that you are bigger than me. Brothers and sisters, how often we forget and we worry and we stress and we don't pray. Why? Because we have forgotten that God has unlimited power. Stephen Charnock, the Puritan theologian, said this about God's power. The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatever he pleases. Whatever his infinite wisdom may direct, whatever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the eternal counsels if power didn't step in to execute them. Without power, God's mercy would be but feeble pity, his promises an empty sound, his threatenings a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. God has unlimited power and no one is going to stop him. Which leads us to the second thing Job notes about God's power and God's sovereignty. At the end of verse two, we see his unstoppable purpose his unstoppable purpose. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. What's the difference between these two? Well, the first thing he said is God can do whatever he wants. Now he says, God will do whatever he wants. God's purpose is unstoppable. He says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The purpose, that's the idea of a plan or intention. Whatever God plans in his heart, whatever he chooses to do, cannot be thwarted. Now that word thwarted, it's translated in the prophets as when they would fortify a wall or fortify a city. Job is saying, God, your plans can't be conquered. Uh, they, they are inaccessible. They, God's plans are impregnable. No one is going to beat God's plan. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Well, how does God accomplish his purposes and, and what are those? We see it all, all through the scripture in a lot of ways. A few to, to note, Jeremiah 23 tells us that it is God's purpose to punish sinners. Specifically in that context, those who are false prophets, he will bring judgment on their sin. In Acts chapter four, it tells us that God's purpose was to ordain the life events of Jesus Christ all the way through the Passion Week leading him to the cross. We see it in the plan of salvation. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. If you're a Christian in this room this morning, do you know why you are saved? It is because no purpose of God's can be thwarted. God chose in his heart that he would save many for his own glory, and therefore you are saved, because no one stops God's plans. Ultimately, we can say that God's purpose is is everything that we know. All things God has planned and ordained them. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God will do whatever he wants. And just so you know, no one's going to stop him. Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar writes, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? (laughs) Not the greatest kings of earth, not the greatest angels in heaven will look at God and say, what are you doing? God's purposes cannot be thwarted. God will do whatever he wants. You say, wait, but we sin. There's, there's corruption and evil. Is that God's plan? We say God is never the author of sin. God is never the author of sin, James 1.13. And yet, in his incredible wisdom, God even uses the actions of sinful people to accomplish his good purposes. You understand? Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, Jesus, delivered over. Why, why was Jesus delivered over? By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of sinful men. God's purposes are not thwarted even by the actions of sinful people. God does whatever he wants. John Gill in his commentary says, Job now saw and was fully assured that all that had befallen him was according to the sovereign and inscrutable purposes of God and according to the wise counsels of his will. Listen, he knew that not only God could do everything, but that he also did whatever he pleased. God's plans cannot be thwarted. Let's think about some application. Let's, let's bring it back to, to real life, everyday life. You, you're leaving church today, tomorrow, this week. Well, how do we think about this? Well, think about this, a couple things. Number one, if, really, if God is really that powerful, recognize nothing is easy or hard for God to do, Okay? God is perfectly powerful. He either does it or he doesn't. Also, uh, think about this. If God's plans cannot be thwarted by the greatest kings of earth and the greatest angels in heaven, guess what? Can't be thwarted by you either. You're just not that important, frankly. But this is comforting to God's people. You can't mess up the plan. No one's crashing the system here. Uh, Yeah, you can sin and you can make God's plan for your life more difficult and not as fun and enjoyable. But when it comes down to it, no matter what you do, you are not breaking God's plan. It can't happen. So take a deep breath before you make that next decision. Trust the Lord and it'll probably be okay. So two applications. Number one, stop worrying. God is big enough to be trusted. He can do all things and no purpose of his can be thwarted. Why are you worrying? Number two, pray. 
Pray. Do you pray like God is really that big? Also, if you know that God's purposes are the ones that get to happen and not yours, you say, well, how do I pray? Well, pray what God wants. Pray what you want, but pray what God wants. You say, God, uh, uh, please give me a new job. Is he going to answer that? I don't know. It's up to him. You say, God, no matter whether I get a new job or not, please humble me and teach me to trust in you no matter my circumstances. Guaranteed, it's going to happen because God has promised that. That is his purpose for you no matter what. So don't worry and pray. Pray like God really is the biggest thing that there is. You know why? Because he is. We need to remember God's sovereignty. But the second step to trusting God is not only remembering his sovereignty, but then recognizing our complete ignorance. You see, if we know that God is big, that helps. But if we think we are equally big, that's a problem. (laughs) Recognize our complete ignorance. That is, man utterly lacks the knowledge and wisdom to judge God's decisions. We utterly lack the wisdom and knowledge to judge God's decisions. The first first thing Job mentions here in verse three is our lack of knowledge. He says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Our our lack of knowledge. Now, if you're paying attention, this is actually a quotation. Job is quoting back from chapter 38 when God said this to him. God said to him in Job 38 too, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job repeats that back to God and says, hey, remember when you asked me this, who who was the foolish one? That was me. By by quoting it back to God, he's acknowledging this is him. And he says, by words without knowledge, I I am covering over your wisdom, your counsel, with my ignorance. (laughs) Why am I not seeing God's truth in this matter? Because I'm putting my ignorance on top of it and thinking that's the answer. Job is, is obscuring God's wisdom by not having the knowledge, not having the information. Job recognizes he doesn't have the knowledge that he needs to make decisions like God makes decisions. Frankly, he doesn't have the information. I think you all know this, but let me remind you lovingly, because I'm your brother here. You don't know what God knows. You just don't. And the amount of bad decisions we make and the amount of frustration we have in our relationships because we assume we know the whole story, well, frankly, it's unfortunate. You don't know what God knows. God alone knows everything. But secondly, notice at the end of verse three, Job also comments on our lack of understanding because not only do we lack the knowledge, we also lack the understanding. Therefore, I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job says, I I have declared, I've made known, I, I have made statements about things which I didn't understand. The idea of understanding, the, the idea of perception or, or being able to comprehend or discern something, really work through it in your mind and, and have a grasp on it. Job says, I was having running commentary on things that frankly, I didn't even understand. Things too wonderful for me, things too marvelous for me. Now that word is actually used a lot in Job and you know who it's used about? It's not Job. It's God. Job 5, 9, God does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Job 9, 10, he does great things unfathomable and wondrous works. Job 37, 5, God thunders with his voice wondrously, listen to this, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. 
Job 37, 14, Elihu says, listen to this Job, stand and consider the wonders of God. Job looks at God and he says, I've been trying to have an opinion on things that are outside my jurisdiction. I've been trying to comment on things that are God things, that are wonderful, marvelous things that only you get to understand, and I don't. So you understand what he's saying here for us, right? We don't have the knowledge. Even if we did, even if we had all the knowledge, all of the data, even if that was accessible to us, you simply don't have the computing power, okay? Your little pea brain can't handle what God has to think about. God is bigger than you. He says, that which I did not know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, you've probably heard this one before. The secret things belong to the Lord. Recognize that there are things that God gets to know that you and I do not get to know. And just so you know, that list is a lot longer than we like to think. God knows everything. God is the one who has perfect knowledge. We do not. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, God's judgments, his decisions, his choices, God's decisions are a great deep, which we cannot fathom, much less find out the springs of where it comes from. We see what God does, but we neither know why he does it, what he's aiming at, or what he will bring it to. These are things too wonderful for us out of our sight to discover, out of our reach to alter, and out of our jurisdiction to judge of. They are things which we know not. It is quite above our capacity to pass a verdict upon them. This is the humility of Job saying, oh, I don't know, I can't understand, you alone, God, are big enough to make these decisions. Application for us, what is it? Well, it's pretty obvious. Recognize you and I's pitiful ignorance. We don't know. God alone knows all things. He is the very source of knowledge and wisdom. And yet, and just so you know, I was convicted in my own heart, so I'm going to share it with you. How often do you and I speak with very much confidence on things we know very little about? Just saying, we can all go from armchair quarterbacks to internet doctors to political analysts pretty quick. And it's bad enough to do these things about worldly matters, the, the things of men. You, you think you know better than a professional athlete that does this all day, every day, whatever. You think you know how God should be thinking and what God should be doing with your life? You are walking down a path of foolishness. You don't know. We need to remember God's perfect sovereignty recognize our complete ignorance. And our third step here is to respond with humble repentance. Respond with humble repentance. That is having a proper view of who God is, that he is big, and a proper view of who we are, that we are small, will necessarily lead to humility and repentance and worship before God. The first thing that Job notes here in verse four is the necessity of our response, the necessity of our response. He says, hear now and I will speak, I will ask you and you instruct me. Now, if you're paying attention again, Job is quoting again from that conversation back in verse, uh, chapter 38. In chapter 38, verse three, God looked at Job and said, now gird up your loins like a man, I will ask you and you instruct me. 
But flip back to chapter 40. Something's going on here. It's very interesting. Track with me for just for a minute, okay? In chapter 38, God says, I'm going to ask you a question you need to answer, okay? We come to verse 40, chapter 40, verse 2. The Lord said to Job, with a fault finder contend with the Almighty, let him who reproves God answer it. He says again, Job, you need to answer me. Well, how does Job answer? Chapter 40, verse 3, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. Job, in chapter 40, said that he would not talk anymore. He says, I'm done. Put my hand on my mouth. I'm done. Probably, again, try not to get in any more trouble. We've all done that at some point. The question is, why does Job start talking again in chapter 42 when we get to our passage that we've been studying? Did he get the last word? Did he win the argument against God? <gasps> Don't be silly. God always wins. He always wins, right? You can disagree with God all you want if you want to always be wrong and God always be right. That's how it works. So the question is, why? Why did Job say he wasn't going to talk anymore and then he starts talking again? The answer is in chapter 40, verse 6. The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. <laughs> you see what happened? God said, Job, you need to answer. And Job said, I don't think I have anything to say. And God said, not good enough. You need to answer. You see what? Sometimes we look at Job here in chapter 40 and he's covering his mouth and oh, look at this guy's humility. He finally gets it. Sometimes, I submit to you, it is the humble thing and the right thing to close your mouth. Sometimes it is the humble thing and the right thing to open your mouth and say the thing that you really don't want to say. Usually it has something to do with, I'm sorry and I hope that you will forgive me. Let's be honest, you get in a tiff with your wife, it's a whole lot easier to say, you know what, let's just not talk about this anymore. Especially when you're wrong, right? It's a lot harder to be humble in your heart and open your mouth and have a helpful conversation with someone you love and do what's best for them. Kids, when you're in trouble with your mom and dad and they come and they ask you a question that you and them both know the answer to and you say, I don't know. Is that the right thing to do, the humble thing to do? No. What's the humble and right thing to do? It's to look your mom and dad in the eye and say, I knew that was wrong and I did it anyway and I'm sorry I sinned against you and please forgive me and I'll accept whatever consequences are appropriate. That's hard, but it's right. Job tried to get out. He tried to say, I don't think I have anything more to say. I think I want to be done talking. And God said, not so fast. You need to answer me. The necessity of our response. The reality is, and I hope that you're all listening, you are responding to God every day of your life, one way or the other. Either you are responding to God by, by trusting in him and obeying his word, or you're responding to him by ignoring him and pretending like he doesn't exist and doing whatever you think is best. Either way, you have a necessary response to what God has told you. We have to give a response. Now the answer is, the question is, could Job actually answer God's questions? Of course not, he's Job, he's not God. But he does need to tell God what he learned. And so that brings us to the second thing in verse five, the basis of our response. Why, how can we actually respond to God correctly? On what basis can we respond to God? 
Well, Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. God, I've heard of you, I know you, I've been taught, I've been instructed, I know a little bit of theology, I took that class one time, Uh, I know some things about you. But now my eye sees you. He has to have the hearing. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. We even talked about that in in a quip class before. Uh, People don't get saved by being argued into the kingdom, right? People get saved, how? By, you know, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10. We have to hear the gospel. We have to hear the truth of God's word for us to be made right before God. That has to come first. But notice, he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. <laughs> I, am, I am seeing you differently. I, I am understanding things I did not understand before. Now, in the New Testament, we talk a lot about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight, right? Uh, About how when we are first saved, at the moment of our conversion, God opens our eyes to see the truth. Is that what's happening here for Job? I don't think so. I don't think this is his initial conversion. We saw even back in chapter one where he was blameless and fearing God and God called him his servant. I think he was right before God this whole time. But but he says, now I seize you. Even in some of the parables and stories that Jesus tells during his ministry, he talks about how your spiritual vision gets better over time, right? Your vision gets enhanced. We need to open our eyes and really look and see who God is in his word. O'Donnell says, Job finally sees clearly that he wasn't seeing clearly. Job is seeing God in a new light. He's seeing him differently than he had before. You've all been to the eye doctor and they put you in front of that thing and they say, this is what you're seeing now. And you're like, yes, this looks perfectly normal. And they say, this is what you could be seeing. And they flip it and you're like, I could have been seeing this whole time. Job says, I've heard of you, but I see you. I see you. Longman says, it is one thing to hear God, but quite another thing to encounter God. This is a church, and I want to encourage you with this. This is a church that loves God's word, loves knowing who God is. And many of you have have verses memorized and all those things, and that's good and you should do that. But let me be really honest with you. If you are are memorizing your Bible book themes and you're checking the little bubble on your YouVersion Bible reading plan app every day, and you're not trying to know God, you've missed the point. Job says, I see you. Now my eye sees you. And frankly, that's what gave Job hope this whole time. Back in Job chapter 19, verse 25, Job says, as for me, I know that my redeemer lives. I know that God is real. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God. What is is the basis of you and I responding to God correctly. It's knowing God, having a relationship with God. You, this God, the God who can do anything he wants, who will do whatever he wants, the God who knows every single thing there is to know. You can know him. You can know God. And so you can respond appropriately. Verse six tells us about the nature of our response. Job says, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I I retract, I reject my previous statements, all those things that I said that were wrong. I repent, I I changed my mind, I'm sorry. 
Now the question is, some theologians get confused here and they say, why is Job repenting? It said back in chapter one, Job didn't sin. Well, of course he didn't sin in chapter one. There was a lot of chapters in between chapter one and two and 42. Job, ultimately, he's not suffering because of some prior hidden sin. That was one of the arguments he had with his friends. I don't have a hidden sin that God is judging me for. It's not true. But why is Job repenting now? It's because through this process of him thinking through these things and talking with his friends, he spoke out of ignorance of God's ways. He became bitter in his spirit. He even accused God of being unjust. And now he comes and says, God, I was wrong. I spoke about things I did not understand. And I'm sorry. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, true penitence, that is people that are truly sorry, mourn for their sins as heartily as ever they did for an outward affliction. For they are brought to see more evils in their sins than in their troubles. The reality is the number one biggest problem in your life is not your circumstances. The number one biggest problem in your life is your sin in your own heart. That's it. When you come to grieve over your sin as easily as you grieve over the things that are difficult in life, now we're making progress. When you come to the Lord and say, I thought I knew, but I didn't, and I repent, and I'm sorry, and I hope that you'll forgive me. Job, back in chapter 2, was sitting in dust and ashes because he was grieving over his losses. But now he's sitting in dust and ashes because he's grieving over his sin. And if you are not in Christ, this isn't comforting to you. Because you need to first understand that God is holy and he has a righteous standard that you must meet or you will be punished forever for your sin. You are a sinner and there is no way you can save yourself. But God, in his kindness and goodness and infinite wisdom, gave a sacrifice on your behalf. Jesus Christ, the perfect one, took your sacrifice, the just penalty for your sins, so that if you respond in repentance and faith, you can be saved. Job says, I am so sorry that I thought I was God. We are not God. We are too small. We are the sinners. And if you're an unbeliever here, or frankly, even if you're a believer and you're struggling with this, I, I still want answers from God. The issue in your mind, it's not all the things, it's not all the circumstances. The issue is you think God's too small. You think God is like you. He is not. God alone is the one who is big enough to be trusted when we don't understand our lives, and just so you know, you're never gonna understand your life. And when you don't, you remember that God is perfectly sovereign and we can trust him. Steve Lawson summarized it like this. When there are no answers, there is still comfort for your troubled heart. Peace is found in knowing the God who is there and who is sovereign. Strength is found in knowing the God who controls the universe. As we come to the end of the book, Job looks up and he sees God in a new and fuller way. He realizes that God is perfectly orchestrating all the events of his life. He can trust God with his life. God is God. 
I hope this is humbling for you to remember how small you are and how big God is. And I hope it is comforting for you. God, he is big enough to be trusted. We can trust God who is sovereign over all these things. Let's pray together this morning. God, we're so thankful. Thankful for this reminder from your word that, that we don't need to be big enough. We don't need to take care of our lives. We, we simply need to trust and obey. We need to trust that you are sovereign over all these things. We need to faithfully obey your word and the things that you have called us to do. God, even when we don't understand, help us to trust in you and in your sovereignty over all these things. God, I pray for anyone here this morning who has never come to a place of repentance and faith at all. They still think they're in charge or they should be. God, I pray that you would remind them that they need a savior. They need one whom they can trust, who will sovereignly orchestrate their lives. And God, if, if they will, that every piece of their lives will be always for their good and for the glory of your great name. We thank you for all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.